following us uh, on the internet this morning on the stream, uh, the live stream that's going on. And love to see more here. We still have room for around 20 more on Sunday mornings. And as was announced, maybe we can even fit in 30 more with, uh, if there's a few family units that are allowed to sit a little tighter together. But it's not about that. Uh, I was thinking about it this week. We are the church, whether we're gathered together here or whether we are gathered distributed in different ways due to the situation we find ourselves in. And... Uh, and we're just thankful that we have the technology at our, our uh, disposal to be able to take advantage of that and to do all these things. But at the same time, uh, for those that have had the opportunity and are in a position to do so and have been able to come and join us, it's a wonderful thing uh, to sing with masks on, but a wonderful thing to sing and uh, participate uh, together. And uh, it's wonderful news that we have got to the place as a society now in the battle against the, uh, the virus. Uh, that the government feels that we're in a safe enough position to be able to worship with more people in gatherings. Um, and we need to trust to some extent, not always, but to some extent our government and the experts that they have. I was actually thinking about it in a series of emails that were sent around this uh, week uh, amongst the, uh, the elders and a couple of other people. And it used to be that the church provided all almost all the hospitals and medical services in society. It's not that long ago. And it's really just in that, that last couple of generations where government has taken on this role that the church historically would have done. And so we no longer have the medical experts in our church communities. Uh, and it used to be that all the medical experts uh, were working for uh, religious societies uh, in here in Quebec. Uh, and in other places, uh, it could have been the Salvation Army hospitals, and there's so many hospitals that are named after saints and so on, because this is what churches did. And so we're now dependent on the experts in our government, whereas maybe we would have relied on our own expertise in the past within the church community. But it doesn't matter. We need to put our, we do need to work together as a society. We all have different levels of comfort for it, and, and that's accepted, because number one, we're not all the same. Uh, we have different levels of vulnerability, number one. And secondly, we, we live that out in different ways uh, for many different reasons, and that's to be totally respected. And our, and our leadership has tried hard to walk that line, doing, trusting our government so far in the recommendations that they're giving, which by and large have been quite conservative and yet safe and uh, doing our part to continue to battle uh, the virus and the pandemic. It's had lots of consequences. Uh, I, this is the weekend I was planning to be in Texas and I didn't even talk to my sons about it. I was planning actually to try and buy tickets for them and to go to the Promise Keepers. They were going to have this convention with uh, almost 100,000 people in the football stadium in Texas and, uh, and it was supposed to be a launch of the, of the movement in the U.S. again, and it's had to go 100% virtual, so some of you may have caught some of their online videos. You can still register and, and catch some of them. It's just not the same, though. It's 100,000 people in one stadium. Uh, but there's consequences. Uh, this week, I also get uh, a root canal treatment. I'd had a root canal done almost uh, a year ago, and it became seriously infected near the beginning of COVID. Uh, the endodontist, the specialist, uh, took me in and he examined it and he says, well, he says, we need to go in there and clean it up. But he says, we can't do it till we get the go-ahead. I finally have the go-ahead this week, three months after they said it's urgent to treat it. So I've been living with my uh, toothache 
uh, for th around three months now. Uh, so, hey, I'm looking forward to uh, root canal treatment of all things. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and, and lots of things get complicated. Uh, several uh, deaths in, in our congregation or members of our congregation have experienced death to of loved ones. And, and these are difficult times and thankfully the funeral regulations and whatnot have become more relaxed. But uh, I know I've got a, a very good associate uh, friend that I work with uh, on the board of Welcome All Mission and, and he's been waiting for months now to be able to go to Newfoundland to bury his father. And, uh, and he, can't, uh, he can't go there right now and uh, many more have, have faced similar circumstances. So we do want to be uh, uh, supportive of one another and uh, pray for one another. There's, we want to continue being the church even when the church is not gathered in one place because we have these relationships and we have been gathering in one place and we will be gathering in one place again. And now we just need to find new ways of, of relating to one another. Anyway, this morning I want to look into the Old Testament at the minor prophet Hosea. So you could turn in your Bibles to Hosea. Um, Hosea is best known for the story of how God told him to take an adulterous wife, uh, okay, and together, and, and, and all the logical consequences that such a relationship would bring, the complications it would bring to his life. That would have been a difficult decision, we don't typically choose to marry somebody that is adulterous, that we know they're going to stray. But today we're not going to focus on that. It's a fascinating story, but we're more familiar with that part of the book of Hosea. So we're going to move past that part today, and we're going to look at some of the other chapters and the latter chapters of Hosea and several truths that emerge. And it is a bit of a, con a result of my own personal reading and, and devotion. I actually brought along my little book that I use for taking notes in the morning when, when I sit in, in our solarium and, and I'm reading the scriptures and I try to jot down some of the things that God has been saying. And so once in a while, if it does a jump, it's probably just a jump from, you know, from the Wednesday to the Thursday because I moved on to a new chapter that day. Uh, and I, wanted, I like to bring sermons that have been preached to me first and, and share those things with others. And so some of this, uh, for sure, are things that God was speaking to me back in June uh, already as I was uh, just looking into this book and, and meditating on what God had to say. Um, first, just a couple of historical facts on the time and the context of this prophet. Hosea was a prophet to what was called the Northern Kingdom, to Israel, okay, uh, at an unusual time in history, uh, most, time, most of the time when you look back, uh, times are unusual. There's a, we can see all of the events around. It was actually a time of a lot of prosperity and stability in the northern kingdom. It had not been that way. Uh, uh, the king, Jeroboam II, that was the king at this time, the ruler at this time, his, his grandfather had lost a huge part of the kingdom in several wars that had taken place. Uh, Assyria, uh, one direction, Syria, the other direction, had been taking uh, large pieces of the land away from Israel. But Jeroboam's father had done a good job of consolidating and bringing part of that back in through a number of wars, and Jeroboam himself had success. And by the time we get to the story with Hosea, the northern kingdom had extended its boundaries in at least a couple of directions to the boundaries and the size that had been during the time of King David and Solomon. 
the great years of this nation. And the southern kingdom was experiencing success at that time as well. And their boundaries were also at those, near those same limits as what they had experienced under David and Solomon. So these were good times. And good times and stability and peace, not just for one generation, but for a couple of generations, starts bringing about a new kind of situation, new kinds of lifestyles, and different kinds of battles that we have to deal with. And so this is a time when Hosea finds himself addressing the people of Israel in the northern kingdom. So it's quite different than what their ancestors experienced. So, uh, in fact, uh, it, was, uh, it had gotten so bad at the time of, of uh, Jeroboam's grandfather, who would have been Jehoahaz, uh, the strength of Israel's army had fallen to only 50 horsemen and 10 chariots. That's how poverty-stricken, and, and 10,000 foot soldiers, that's how poverty-stricken they were in terms of military. Um, and they had come from this lowly estate all the way back to where they find themselves at this point. Uh, so what is the point of looking at the history? Well, it's to understand what it was like for the Israelites during this time of Hosea so we can interpret the scripture passages we're going to look at. The generation at the time of Hosea had never experienced those humiliating defeats. They had not experienced foreign oppression. They only knew about it from the stories, from the memories of the elders, of the things that people had talked about. It wasn't real to them. They hadn't experienced it. It's easy to forget the lessons of previous generations. Typically, what we hear from our parents, we retain from our grandparents a little bit, and from our grandparents, grandparents, that's just a story. All right, and, and that's, that's a challenge. It's a challenge right now in the entire Jewish community with the Holocaust, right? It's getting so far removed that there's, the feeling of it is gone. It's become a story. So the, they had never experienced all these things. By this time, it had been peace, and with peace comes economic prosperity. The land was producing abundantly, and many people were becoming wealthy. Luxuries were once again becoming more common. Building activity was flourishing on every hand, and this led to a widespread feeling of pride, and pride in their culture, pride in what they were doing. Um, they were in a good place. Though people are pleased with conditions of this kind, seldom does prosperity lead to behavior that pleases God. It's interesting. We pray for these things. When we are blessed with these things, Somehow it doesn't produce what God might have come to expect in responding to those prayers. See, social and moral conditions developed that were wrong and degrading. Side by side with wealth, extreme poverty existed. Through dishonest gain and false balances, the strong took advantage of the weak. Those who had wealth felt free to exploit or to oppress the orphans and the widows and even to sell the destitute on public markets. Justice was in short supply and the courts were doing very little to help. You might say they had a systemic problem in their justice system. Okay? And we see on closer examination that they were living the consequences of a much deeper nature than just simply what we see on the surface of the story. If you turn to Hosea 9, let's look at verse 10. 
God is speaking. And when I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the deserts. When I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing the early fruit on the fig. It's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture of people that are in desperate need for God when God comes into their lives and blesses them, it's, it's just beautiful to see. I have seen people come to the Lord after a life of, of never following him, and they discover the Lord, and they come to the Lord. It looks just like that. It's just beautiful to see. You see this budding life. You see the, the bud there first, and it produces fruit, and it's a beautiful thing to see. They're excited, and we're excited for them. And God looks at looked at, at these people at that time uh, earlier on. He said, this is a beautiful thing. There is life to their faith. They're living it out, and it, it has a chance now to grow and reproduce and to multiply and to produce what we would expect this seed to produce in God's people. But what happens? Well, let's continue the verse. But when they came to Baal Peor, they consecrated themselves to that shameful idol, and became as vile as the thing they loved. They became as vile as the thing they loved. With success, the Israelites started to turn in other directions than toward God. In fact, if you backed up to Isaiah, uh, Hosea rather, 7, verse 16, Hosea writes, They do not turn to the Most High. They do not turn to the Most High. There's only one place where the Most High can be. So that means they're turning to things that are lesser or less high, less worthy than the one true God. One of my favorite authors when it comes to uh, Christian spirituality is A.W. Tozer. And he frequently talked about this concept of our first love. And he says, all things being equal, the destiny of a man or nation may safely be predicted from the idea of God which that man or nation holds. No nation can rise higher than its conception of God. While Rome held to her faith in the stern old gods of the Pantheon, she remained an iron kingdom. Her citizens unconsciously imitated the character of her gods, however erroneous their conception of that deity might have been. When Rome began to think loosely about God, she began to rot inwardly, and that rot never stopped until it brought her to the ground. So it must be with men and nations. A church is strong or weak just as it holds to a high or low idea of God. For faith rests not primarily upon promises, but upon character. A believer's faith can never rise higher than his conception of God. A promise is never better or worse than the character of the one who makes it. An inadequate conception of God may result in a weak faith, for faith depends upon the character of God just as a building rests upon its foundation. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. How big, how high is our God? Our prayer, our daily life, our worship, 
our life together reflect our concept of God. The danger of success is that we take God for granted and then we start to give credit that is due to God and we direct it toward other causes. We extract principles of success and we teach others principle of principles of success. But it's interesting thing, God brought us to success and somehow the principles of success that we teach so often never once make mention of God. So is God in those principles? Or are those principles that we teach our children or to our employees simple principles that depend on our competencies? Are they principles that work for, would work for anyone, whether they worship at the feet of atheism or Hinduism? Are they principles that just work for humankind? Well, some are. But what about the ones where these are things that came into our lives directly by God's intervention? What are the things that we communicate after that? Are we teaching our children how great is our God and how utterly dependent we are on God for our life and our success and that without him, we would fail as people. Israel would have resembled a lot of what we see in Canada today. Even in this very difficult time of a pandemic, we remain a wealthy nation, and we remain a nation that has forgotten her God. I have not seen our governments turning toward God for solutions. I have not seen or heard anyone turning toward God for solutions, not even those that are suffering the worst at this time, although there will be people on their beds that are suffering and struggling to breathe that will turn to God at that time. Uh, but we may be frustrated with the constraints in our lives, but we remain independent because we remain wealthy without a need for God, we think. It was primarily during my generation uh, that we saw parents start to live out the logic of their faith in a new way, in the language that people spoke in their homes and in front of their children. Historically, in previous generations in Western culture, parents, even ungodly parents, believed that there was good speech and bad speech. We can bless and we can curse. Ungodly people might swear and curse and use foul language amongst friends or on the job, but in front of their children, and quite often in front of their wives, they would clean up their language because there was still good and bad language. In front of women, they would usually clean up their language. They would discipline their children so that they would learn right and wrong. You'd get your mouth washed out with soap if you had dirty language. I don't think it cleaned up any language. But it was hypocritical because they were asking their children to live a lives that they themselves weren't living. During my generation, more and more parents recognized the hypocrisy, but rather than making the effort to clean up their own lives, they logically came to the conclusion that if there is no God, or if God was reduced to some generic force that had no moral character, therefore there was no basis for passing on morals to their children. And so they started using the same language in their home as they used on the job. And they no longer disciplined children for the same language. And we see the consequence on television, uh, well now it's streamed television shows. Try and find a streamed television show where the language doesn't include cursing, swearing, uh, or foul language. There aren't many left. 
At least we used to go through a process that the government established to try and control what was going to come out on the screen. Well, why don't we anymore? Well, because we've become as vile as the thing that we have loved. We no longer love a holy good God as a nation. We as a nation have replaced God with something else, less worthy. We have sunk to the level where we don't think there is a God who cares how, to, how we speak or even what we think about because, let's remember, the words come from the heart. What comes out of the mouth comes from what's inside. And so we can see as a nation where we are inside. More and more, parents don't care about the filth their children watch because they don't care about the filth that they've allowed to infiltrate into their own lives. And we all know it's a bad thing to be a hypocrite. I'm not sure where they figure out it is bad to be a hypocrite. They don't recognize good and bad. But there is a logic and an illogic that goes in, in all our things. See, children can use language that their grandparents would turn over in their graves to hear, and parents just shrug their shoulders. Because, actually, <laughs> grandparents... You didn't give us a reason why we should actually tell our children not to use that language. Now, my point isn't to say that we should remove ourselves from this world and never expose ourselves to filth. We're called to go into the world and to bring light to their darkness. The point is to recognize the source of this move. A loss of the belief in a holy and good God is at the source of problem. And if we look into our lives and say, what are the things I really love? Do I really love this holy and good God? Is he truly the most high in my life? Is he the most high in our church's life? Hosea says that Israel started really well. God looked at her early faith and he said it was like finding grapes in the desert, like seeing the early fruit on a fig tree. Beautiful. It's wonderful to see that. God said similar things, for example, when Abraham came to faith and we saw the things that he did, right? God saw the heart of Abraham and he glowed. They were beautiful. But when God exchanged, or but rather when people exchanged the love of God for their own competencies, there's a word we love to use, our own competencies. These are things we own, right? And then for idols. And it was gone. And their character followed the character of their idols. They couldn't rise above the level of their idols. They worshipped vile idols, and they became vile. There are so many subtle gods to chase, but the real question is whether we set our minds and hearts on God. We need to study the real thing, not the counterfeits. Have we given our best to him? What is giving our best that might depend on you, we all have different things that we wrestle with. I myself, I've never actually found it that difficult uh, and never really wrestled with, with giving my, of my money. Uh, and so, a lot of people really struggle with that. But on the other hand, I sometimes really struggle with giving my time. And other people find it easy to give their time. In fact, I started, as I said before, I started reading through Hosea on June, and on June 12th, I wrote in my journal, one of the hardest things for me is to spend time with God, to take a day with him alone, and yet if he is number one, that should be part of my life. And I preached a sermon on it at that time. Guys, we preach, uh, often preach things on things that we ourselves are working through. How big is our God? 
Our prayer, our daily life, our worship reflect our concept of God. Hosea 10 verse 1. Israel was a spreading vine. He brought forth fruit for himself. As his fruit increased, he built more altars. As his land prospered, he adorned his sacred stones. We have this tendency to think that wealth is a blessing from God, but wealth very often becomes a great danger to our souls. It can subtly and not so subtly lead our hearts astray. Because wealth brings independence. And wealth increases our opportunity for self-credit. And it can lead us to start trusting in all the wrong things instead of the right things. Money can buy a lot. The heart is so incredibly deceitful. And because it is so deceitful, we need others to help us to see where we may be going wrong. We need others that are close to us, that we allow into our lives to challenge us. Those that will help us to stay accountable. In Hosea 12, verses 6 to 10, he writes, But you must return to your God, maintain love and justice, and wait for your God always. The merchant uses dishonest scales and loves to defraud. Ephraim boasts, I am very rich. I have become wealthy. With all my wealth, they will not find any iniquity or sin. I have been the Lord your God ever since you came out of Egypt. I will make you live in tents again as in the days of your appointed festivals. I spoke to the prophets and gave them many visions and told parables through them. I remember as a young man, my mother was trying to persuade my father we should go camping. And I remember my father saying, I've worked my whole life not to live in a tent. He says, I am not living in a tent on my vacation. But it's an interesting thing. They've become so wealthy. They used to live in tents. They used to live in tents. They were wanderers. They were nomads wandering through the desert. Their possessions consisted of the tent and what they could drag along behind them. The amount of, the amount of, of cattle or whatever that they could bring with them as they walked through the desert. It wasn't easy for them. And God is saying... I, do I have to take you back to living in tents? That's where, I think, it's, I think that's what he's referring to when he talks about this budding faith, the beauty of seeing this fruit starting to develop in their lives. That's when they came to that faith and expressed that faith living in the desert. See, waiting, he says wait on God. A life, include, a life of faith includes waiting on God. Waiting doesn't come easy to the self-made person. It really flies in the face of the self-made person. We've become accustomed to the independence that can come with the kind of wealth that we enjoy in our society. We greatly admire, you know, the, the entrepreneur, the self-made wealthy person, and wealth normally comes to those that have really good principles underneath, those who work hard and are good managers of their resources, including their money, but not just that. There's many resources need to be managed well, including people, in order to succeed. The consequence is that we come to trust in our abilities and what we like to call our competencies. And to attribute the success to those same competencies. We take 
the credits. In fact, churches can get caught very much in building competencies to grow a church. I remember attending a church growth uh, seminar years ago, and I remember the speaker saying, you know what, he says, the principles I'm teaching, he says, could be used to build a Jehovah Witness church, or Mormon church, or for that matter, a social organization. He says, the church growth principles, he says, were principles. The life of the spirit, he says, is what makes the church. So if you do these things without developing the life, the spiritual life of a church, he says, it will be for nothing. So it can go, this all can go for any kind of success, not just monetary success. Okay. It could be for an athletic ability that we develop through hard work and perseverance. It could be for a professional career in the health field or, or in education where it isn't monetary success, but there's other forms of recognition that bring success. There's parts of the legal field where it's not the monetary part, and yet there are powerful positions that one could attain to. It could also be in taking personal pride in your children, a product of yourself in so many different ways. In most of these areas, we aren't accustomed to waiting for your God. We've learned to take matters into our own hands. Now, the Bible isn't against pro uh, proactivity, nor against performing your best, nor against attaining the best marks you can if you're a student. In fact, just the opposite. You know, we are to study to show ourselves approved unto God. We are to be exemplary managers and employees and students and homemakers and professionals. But we are asked to check our hearts and to see where we put the credit for our success. Hosea points out in the 12th chapter that wealth can bring the illusion of well-being and it can even bring the illusion of spirituality. Who wants to put a poor person on the stage to share their testimony when you could put a billionaire on the stage to hear her testimony? It's more impressive. But wealth brings self-dependence and not God-dependence. It, it is a force that is constantly at work and will never stop. And so it is ironic in chapter 12, verses 9 to 10, that God's greatest blessing for Israel in this time of prosperity would be to make you live in tents again. To take them back to the old days, when they had no permanent home. They were wanderers. They were renters. They didn't own their own home. But when they were close to God, when they recognized their need of God, when they desperately sought God, and when they met God and he met their needs right there where they were. Poverty is actually a blessing when it draws us back to God again. But it isn't a guarantee to do so. A poor person can worship money as much as a wealthy person. Or a poor person may seek the wrong gods to get them out of that situation. Lotto Quebec knows exactly where to make money. It makes the money on the backs of poor people that are desperate to get out of their situation. They don't believe there's any way to get out of their situation except by chance because they live. They have a faith in chance. And so they buy lottery tickets, incredible amount of lottery tickets. It's not the wealthy that stand in line at the Depaner to buy a lottery ticket. It's the poor, it's the average that are looking at a chance of getting out of their situation and living like the wealthy live. So we're to wait on God 
and use our wealth for love and justice. Using our wealth for purposes other than ourselves is a healthy exercise for our souls. We use all our resources for the most important thing in our lives. We do. And, and what we do can be an act of worship or not. If love for God and love for the neighbor drives our lives, then our wealth will follow and we will use our wealth for love and justice. Love for God and love for our neighbor. And we will fight for justice because our God is a God of holiness and justice. As with all our resources, whether that be with our time or our money, things we all seem to have in relative abundance. If we don't think so, there's still many parts of the world we can go to to see that we are still very wealthy. Hosea 13, verse 6. And my reading read me here, and I, and I put a little square around this. When I fed them, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, they became proud, and they forgot me. It's ironic how even God's blessings lull us into this false position. When God fed them, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, they became proud. And when we become proud, we forget our God. The final two chapters of Hosea give several illustrations of how God blessed. But Israel was turning away at the same time. Their peace and their wealth were leading them astray. And God's anger was burning against them. As the book had started, they were an adulterous nation. They were unfaithful. God had treated them well. He had brought them in. He had blessed them. And that blessing resulted in peace and wealth, just as they had prayed. And God says they are going to be destroyed now because they are against him. In 13 verse 8, Jesus, uh, rather, God says, I will be like a lion among them. Like a leopard, I will lurk by the path. Like a bear robbed of her cubs. That's one we relate to in Canada. Eh? Like a bear robbed of her cubs, I will attack them and rip them open. Like a lion, I will devour them. A wild animal, I will tear them apart. You are destroyed, Israel, because you are against me, against your helper. So frustrated when you help somebody and they just, and then, and then they reject that. They reject you. We, we, we hate the injustice of that. It just feels so wrong. It is wrong. It is wrong. But this is what we do to God. And so he becomes this roaring lion that's going to tear them apart because of their sin, their lack of, of faithfulness to him. But then we can go to chapter 14 and we see not just the justice of God being expressed. And I often think of God to really understand the character of God. We must understand him in his holiness and his justice, but also his love and his mercy. On the one hand, he cannot tolerate sin and rebellion and an adulterous heart. On the other hand, his love for his people is infinite and he yearns to reach out to them and to bless them. In chapter 14, we see the full character of God expressed. Yes, he is a God of righteousness and justice. He is a roaring lion that will tear apart the rebellious person. And yet chapter 14 is one of the most beautiful chapters in the Bible if you take it in this full context that we learned this morning. Let's read Hosea 14 together as we, as we conclude and, and we'll note for ourselves. There's, there's so much to, to underline in your Bible in this chapter uh, if you're a person who likes to underline or write in your Bible. 
Uh, we'll look at this quickly, but I think I'm going to need to return to, to chapter 14 in the future message and to go through it more thoroughly as there's just so much wealth in just nine verses. There's so much wealth in just nine little verses here. Let's, uh, and by the way, I, I started out by, by highlighting all the things I wanted to, to talk about, and the, and the whole thing ended up being yellow uh, in highlight. Return Israel to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. So there's a call now to return. And God, he's not saying, wow, I condemn you. You better run for your lives. He calls and he says, return. Then verse 2, take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. I like what he says there. Take words with you. Don't just go to see God here. Take words with you. And there's a particular kind of words that are important. Okay? There is a repentance, a verbal repentance that is necessary. Forgive all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. And then verse 3, Assyria cannot save us. We will not mount war horses. We will never again say our gods to what our own hands have made. For in you, the fatherless, find compassion. We'll never say it's our own competencies that have made this, that have done this. Who are the, why does he talk about the fatherless? The fatherless in their society were the most vulnerable. No chance of getting anywhere without a father. And the fatherless will find compassion. It's not going to be the war horses. It's not going to be the wealth. It's not going to be the resources. It's not going to be the competencies. It's going to be God that makes the difference. Verse 4, I will heal their waywardness and love them freely, for my anger has turned away from this. Verse 5, I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like a lily, like a cedar of Lebanon. He will send down his roots his young shoots will grow. His splendor will be like an olive tree. His fragrance like a cedar of Lebanon. People will dwell again in his shade. They will flourish like the grain. They will blossom like the vine. Israel's fame will be like the wine of Lebanon. Is this a fruit of their abilities, their competencies, the usage of the resources? No. This is the fruit of their words that express in their hearts that they have come to repent of their independence from God, but rather that they are utterly dependent on God's goodness, his kindness, and his love. They are dependent on his forgiveness. Verse 8, Ephraim, what more have I do to, to do with idols? I will answer him and care for him. I am like a flourishing juniper. Your fruitfulness comes from me. Your fruitfulness comes from me. We, we could go into all the passages on the vine and the branches and the fruit in our lives, couldn't we? Finally, in verse 9, who is wise? Hmm. Let them realize these things. Who is discerning? Let them understand. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. 
Amen. Lord, we just thank you for your word. And Lord, uh, these words are for us. And Lord, we want to bring you our words this morning as well. For Lord, uh, we confess that we too have been like the Israelites, Lord. We have depended on ourselves, Lord. We have even claimed credit for ourselves and created principles, Lord, that we have taught to others and even perhaps to our children, Lord, that excluded you when these things have come from your hand. And so, Lord, we humble ourselves. And, Lord, we confess our failure. We confess our sin. We confess, Lord, that we have not made you number one in our lives. And, Lord, we bring our hearts and our minds to you. And, Lord, we thank you that you are a God, not a God that only judges, but a God that forgives and a God that loves and is willing to bring that life back in our lives. And, Lord, we need that wisdom. We need that understanding. Lord, teach us to know these things if we, can't, if we don't know them yet. That, Lord, the true life and true success will come as we apply, Lord, your principles in our lives. Not our own principles, but yours, Lord, that are sometimes so countercultural. Yet, Lord, they are so right. And so, Lord, we, we ask, Lord, that you would teach us and you would correct us. And, Lord, that we give you our words today that we will follow you and we will, Lord, seek you and give the credit to you when we've learned those lessons. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.